Amen. Well, good morning again, church. If you would, go with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we'll be moving out of the book of John just for a few weeks. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And so, Heavenly Father, help us now to see what you say about your church. That we would know Christ and love one another and live faithfully in this world as your people. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you all know, our senior pastor, uh, John Mark, and his family are out of town uh, for the month. They're in Brazil visiting Priscilla's family and ministering in some churches there. And so I would just really encourage you guys to be in prayer for them, for their health and for their, uh, that they could just enjoy fellowship and enjoy uh, time away, enjoy time with the Lord in the Word, and that they could come back to us just full of zeal, full of energy to serve And so rather than continuing in our study in John, we're going to switch gears for a month and do sort of a mini-series on the relational nature of the Christian community with an emphasis on biblical peacemaking. So that's sort of a wordy way of saying that we're going to study what the Bible says about the way in which Christians, particularly Christians gathered into local churches, are to relate to one another and how they are to make peace, and how they are to keep peace with one another at the individual level and at the corporate and communal level. So we'll take up issues like offense, dealing with offense, confessing offense, forgiving offense, covering offense. We'll deal with what the Bible says about dealing with an unrepentant offender, which is what we typically called corrective church discipline. And so this is going to feel a little bit different than what we've been accustomed to the last few weeks in the book of John. I mean, we've been going higher and higher and higher, seeing the glory of Christ in the book of John. And so it'll feel a little bit different. Uh, But instead of doing topical sermons on these topics, we're going to land in a specific section of Scripture that by the grace of God deals with these, these things and work our way through them expositionally. Thankfully, in God's God's wise dealings, He has revealed in His Word 
a section of Scripture that deals directly with relational peace and relational aspects concerning His church. And that section of Scripture is in Matthew chapter 18, which is where we will get to for the next three weeks. And I'll explain why we are in chapter 16 in just a moment. But let me just uh, take a few moments to introduce this series and just lay some context So the book of Matthew is structured around five discourses or five long sections of teaching from Jesus and then there's narrative material in between. So the first discourse is the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives his inaugural kingdom address and he tells his people what life and what ethics is going to look like inside of his kingdom with him as the king. And then the second discourse is in chapter 10 where Jesus commissions the twelve to go out and preach the gospel and He talks to them about the nature of their apostleship and the persecution that they will receive. And then discourse 3 is in chapter 13 where Jesus gives all sorts of parables about the kingdom of God and He makes a distinction between those who receive the kingdom and enter in and those who do not. And he gives parables to distinguish those two types of people. And then in the fourth discourse in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives instructions to his disciples regarding how they are to live in his community. In other words, what does relational life look like in the Messianic community? And he answers this. What does community look like under the rule and reign of the Messiah? Now that the Messiah has come and inaugurated His kingdom in His first coming, how are His people supposed to treat each other until He returns in His second coming? Who's in His community? Who is not in His community? He answers these things. We don't just have to guess. We don't just have to feel our way through this and kind of make church in our own image and likeness and do whatever we feel is right. Jesus gives us the answers. So I've used a a few different phrases to describe this community. Christian community. Messianic community. Life in the kingdom. And all these are synonyms for what will be called throughout the New Testament as the ecclesia or the church. And it's very interesting that the word church that we translate as church is only used two times in all four Gospels. Once here in Matthew 16 and once in Matthew 18. And while certainly these principles, uh, as we will see, can be applied to broader Christian contexts like Christian schools and universities and other groups, uh, primarily this is dealing with life and discipline in the local church. And what is important to remember is that Jesus makes the rules for His community, not us. And I want us to see that as we walk through these passages. But you know, everybody, everybody wants community. Right? Every, everybody wants community. We have membership meetings all throughout, all the time. And everybody says that. We want a church where there's community. And that could be a great thing to want. It just depends on what you mean by community. So some people come and they mean, we want a community where Christ is the focus. We're loving one another the way the Bible says is is put on display. 
We want a community where all sorts of people from differing backgrounds and differing likes and interests all unify around Christ and bear one another's burdens and care for one another on the basis of Christ. And then some come and they want community that they've made in their own image. They have their own conception of community. And so they're on a mission to find a church that has community that will suit them. It will make them happy. And once they don't find it in one church, they'll go look for it in another church and just bop around from place to place to place until they find the church that makes them the happiest or makes them feel most fulfilled. But again, we don't have to bounce around until we find the community that we like the best. Jesus gives us in Matthew 18 and in Matthew 16 instructions regarding the communal nature of His people. This chapter provides the foundation for the rest of the New Testament teaching regarding the life of the Christian community. And think about this. Jesus gives this teaching before His death. Before the cross, before Pentecost, Jesus is teaching this to His disciples. He's actually talking to people in front of Him saying, look, you are in My community. This is how you're to treat one another. And so, before we jump into Matthew 18, it seemed clear to me that we need to back up into chapter 16 because there are a lot of connecting points between chapter 16 and chapter 18, particularly the word church. But also, it's important for us, as we look at the relational aspects of the Christian community, to look at the nature and essence of the Christian community. What is the church? How is the church different than any other club or organization? Some of you with differing backgrounds, especially if you're new, if you're new, maybe you haven't settled this in your conscience. Maybe you don't really have convictions about the local church. You've just gone your whole life. And you go, and if someone asks you, maybe you would say, I don't really know why I go, other than I've been told that I have to. And so you can be thinking about these convictions. What is the starting place for the church? What is the end goal for the church? How do we accomplish that end goal? Is this up for grabs? These are important questions that deserve sufficient treatment before we jump into what church community looks like practically. So this sermon may feel a little bit more abstract than practical, but I think that we will lay an important framework, Lord willing, that we won't have to come back to and rebuild over the next three weeks, but we can merely just take for granted. So here's my, here's my proposition for this morning. Jesus Christ defines the nature of His church. He builds His church His way. Jesus Christ defines the nature of His church and He builds His church his way. And I want to unpack that in three, with three main headings. Number one, the nature of the Christian community is confessional. The nature of the Christian community is confessional. Look at verse 13 to 15. He says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His, his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. 
He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I'll confess, I did not know Pastor John Mark was going to deal with the topic of confession so thoroughly the last couple of weeks. I had written this sermon by and large before that, but I think it's really good that we see that this isn't just something we're coming up with. This is all over the Scriptures, that the people of God will confess Jesus Christ. And so a primary theme in Matthew's Gospel is that of the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? It's a question that's constantly being investigated. Because on the one hand, people know where Jesus comes from. They know His Father, according to the earth. They know His mother. They know His brother. They know His sisters. They know His occupation. Yet on the other hand, it is clear that Jesus is no ordinary human. Right? His teaching has authority, unlike the scribes. When he speaks to demons, they obey him. When he tells someone to get up, they get up. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. And I think it can be helpful to set this scene in its Jewish context in the first century. Because if we're not careful, we could read a passage like this and say, you know, I just really don't get what the big deal is about this confession. You know, it seems pretty clear that Jesus is the Christ. It seems clear that He's the Son of God. What is the big deal? Why is this moment such a big deal? And that's because we are looking back with all of the Gospels and all of the New Testament in front of us. But the people who were alive during Jesus' ministry did not have that. During this time, there was much speculation about the Messiah. There were prophecies from the book of Daniel and other prophecies that were expected to be fulfilled. And there was, a, there was a buzzing in the air. There was an expectation that God was about to visit His people. And on the hills of that, John the Baptist comes preaching his message of repentance. And people are wondering, is he the Messiah? And then Jesus comes and He begins His ministry and people are asking, is He the Messiah? Is He the one we're waiting on? There's speculation about the nature of the Messiah. And here Jesus comes with His disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which is not a Jewish population. So it's a pagan Gentile region, so it's likely there were no scribes, no Pharisees, no crowds begging to be healed. It was just Him and His disciples. And He says to them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What are they saying about Me? He asks them that, and they give a list of common speculation. Some say John the Baptist. We know Herod believed that. He put John to death unjustly, and he believed that Jesus was John raised from the dead, and so that rumor is circulating. Some say Elijah, because a prophecy from Malachi that said that God would bring Elijah forth, that Elijah would go before God when he returned, when he sent his Messiah. Some say Jeremiah. There were all sorts of extra-biblical literature and, and uh, uh, you know, different sayings throughout the, the culture that a prophet would rise up. And so all these rumors are circulating. And while they're not random, they are all wrong. And notice none of them give Jesus the title that He gives to Himself. The Son of Man. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? So no one is saying... 
Jesus is the Son of Man from Daniel 7 who will approach the Ancient of Days and receive a kingdom and receive everlasting dominion and worship. No one is saying that. There's a fundamental misunderstanding by and large about the nature of Jesus Christ and people fail to see Him accurately. But Jesus goes on to ask His disciples as a group, who do you say that I am? There's all these rumors. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, acting as a spokesman for the group, gives the confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Up to this point, the disciples seem to be getting glimpses of Christ's identity, but you get the idea that they don't fully comprehend who Jesus is. They get some parts right, but they don't fully get it. But here in Caesarea Philippi, it's different. There are no crowds begging for bread. No one saying nice things about Jesus to get Him to heal a sickness. Here, it seems like there's conviction with the confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this has been a progression for the disciples. You remember back in Matthew 8 when Jesus rebukes the wind and brings calm to the sea and He gets into the boat, or He's in the boat, He's asleep in the boat, and He rebukes the wind. What do they say? What sort of man is this? Who who is this? That He speaks to the wind, and the wind obeys Him. But then later, in Matthew 14, in another sea episode, when Jesus walks on the water, and Peter gets out and walks on the water and begins to drown. And Jesus rescues him and gets into the boat. It says that then the disciples worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. So the disciples are progressively understanding more and more the identity of Christ. And here in Matthew 16, Peter, speaking for the entire group, confesses Christ accurately and with conviction. This is what I want us to see from this text. The new covenant community will be marked by an accurate and uncompromising confession of Jesus Christ. It will be a characteristic of the new covenant community, of the church. You know, we have so many portraits of Jesus in our society today. We've got all the different children's books and storybooks that paint Jesus in a certain way. And we've got the social Jesus of the liberation gospel. And we've got the humanitarian Jesus that's just concerned with meeting everybody's needs and in having world peace. And we have the conservative Jesus with an American bandana around his head and holding an AR-15. Everybody, so many, are trying to make Jesus in their own likeness and image But here we see that the disciples of Christ, the true followers of Jesus Christ, will confess Him accurately. They will confess Him truthfully. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not only are you the Messiah, you're the Son of God. It was controversial enough to say that Jesus was the Messiah. That was controversial. But to say that He was the Son of God, that could get you killed. That was considered blasphemy. 
Remember, we saw this last week, what the Jews said to Pilate in John 19, 7. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die. Why? Because he made himself to be the Son of God. Remember what John says, John 5.15, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Isn't there such a tendency for people to accept the parts about Jesus that they like, that they agree with, that are comfortable to them, that are convenient to them, and yet reject the parts about Him that are controversial. You know, this is what troubles me so much, and we talked about this last week, so I don't want to continue to beat this, but this idea that you can have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Well, He prayed to receive Christ as His Savior. He just needs to make Him His Lord. Where, where do we see that idea in the New Testament? It's true. It's true that Christians ongoingly bow their knee to Christ's Lordship. That's what we call progressive sanctification. That is a true teaching of Scripture. But to cut Jesus' identity in half, to sever Him, and to tell thousands and even millions of people that you're going to heaven because once upon a time you raised your hand when everybody's eyes were closed in a dark room and repeated a prayer, it's dangerous. And it dilutes the purity of the church. How? Because the nature and essence of the church is that it will be made up of a people who confess the true Christ and know the true Christ. This is what sets, apart, sets us apart from the world, brothers and sisters. That we know Him. That we speak about Him. That we confess Him. Yet, so many churches have adopted this model where there's a mix of people. You know, the local congregation will have some people who do confess Christ accurately and acknowledge His Lordship and take His discipleship seriously. But then a whole host of others just show up on Sunday and they hear a sermon and they leave and come back the next Sunday. Maybe they'll volunteer here or there. Maybe they'll jump into this thing if they like it. But their beliefs their affections, their orientation says very little about their love for Christ. And so the purity of many churches is undermined. And instead of the world seeing a sanctified bride growing in love and in holiness and in fidelity to Jesus and His Word, the world oftentimes sees an organization in a place that is not much different than any other organization that they are a part of. And so what is supposed to be a supernatural community is replaced with a relevant community. And what is supposed to be a confessional community is replaced with a relative community. And the attempt, I think, is to be welcoming, but it just ends up being confusing. You know, guys, people, the people of this world will persecute the church. They, they will even hate the people of God. That is clear and that is understandable. But it is not okay for the people of this world to be confused about the church. 
We should not have non-believers saying, you know what, I just really don't get these Christians. You know, some of them are all about Jesus and they really believe He existed and that He's really God and they read the Bible and they live in these outdated ways and they do really strange things. And then other people aren't much different from me. But yet they call themselves a Christian and they go to church too. I'm confused. Should not be so. It delights the purity of the church. See the confusion here. So what do I mean when I say that the Christian community is confessional? Do I mean that we adopt a confessional statement? I think that's a, certainly an accurate implication that we stand on the historic confession of reformed apostolic Christianity insofar as that it has faithfully unpacked the, the truths of Scripture and the true nature and identity of Jesus Christ. We do that here. We stand on reformed Baptist roots. We, we, we don't hide what we believe about Him. But when I say that the Christian community is confessional, I mean first and foremost that we confess unashamedly with our mouths before the world that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. And that He is the only Savior and Lord. And that all people everywhere are commanded to bow the knee to Him willfully and submit to His Lordship. And that He will judge And no matter how unpopular or dangerous that might be, that marks Jesus' community until He returns. Jesus says in Matthew 10.32, So everyone who acknowledges Me before men, I will also acknowledge before My Father who is in heaven. Church, what we confess about Jesus Christ sets us apart from the world. The people... The society, the culture, the books, they're all saying one thing, two things, three things, all sorts of different things about Jesus. But we, the church, we confess Him truthfully. So not only is the nature of the Christian community confessional, but number two, it is also revelatory. The nature of the Christian community is revelatory. Look at verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter did not come to this conclusion on his own. He didn't go into the synagogues and have this taught to him by the scribes. He didn't go through the Old Testament and reason unto himself that Jesus was the Christ. The Father revealed it to him from heaven. Supernaturally. He didn't just attain to this intellectually. God reveals this truth to Peter in such a way that it brings conviction to his heart. Belief. This is consistent with what Jesus said earlier in Matthew 11, 25-27, when it says that at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. 
Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And listen, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The Christian community will be full of people to whom God has graciously revealed Himself to their hearts so that it brings about true conviction and discipleship and allegiance to Jesus Christ. And this comes through a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. John 6.44, Jesus says, No one comes to the Son unless the Father draws Him. If you are a Christian, if you are part of God's new covenant community, it is because God has revealed Himself to your heart and shined His light in your heart. This is not from man. It's from heaven. By the power of the Spirit. This is why the Christian community can never be an arrogant community. What what can we be arrogant of? God has mercifully showed Himself to us. Brought us near to Him. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Following the prince of the power of the air going on the course of this world, chasing our idols, God revealed Himself to you. Shined His light in your heart. We cannot be arrogant. We must not boast. We are recipients of grace. Paul says in Galatians 1.16 that it pleased God to reveal His Son to Him in order that He might preach Him among the Gentiles. Why, why is this important for us to understand? Because it shows us who makes up Jesus' community. Who gets into the church? Who's supposed to be in the church? Who has Jesus brought in? Remember, Christ makes His church. And His church is a supernatural community. A revelatory community. He started His church supernaturally by pouring out the Holy Spirit. He he builds His church ongoingly, supernaturally, as He gives grace to people to hear the Word as it is preached and they believe and come in. And He sustains the church supernaturally as the Spirit works holiness into our lives and we persevere until we go to be with Him in glory or until He returns. Jesus' community is not an ordinary community. It's not like the the golf club. It's not like a basketball team. It's not even like a school. Even if it's a really good school. A Christian school where everybody's beliefs and ideals match up. Jesus' community in the local church is a supernatural community where, th- where, where we get in through faith in Christ. You know, that's why uh, historically baptism has been seen as the doorway into the local church. Because what what we do when we get baptized is we show publicly what Jesus has done inwardly. It's a public proclamation. I'm dead to my sins. I believe Jesus is who He says He is and I will commit to following Him. And once we're baptized, we enter into the body where we take the supper and continue to proclaim 
who He is. Continue to confess who He is. You know, when you come down to this table, you're saying to that world, Jesus is Lord. These people are my brothers and sisters. He's gathered us together. Purchased us with His own blood. We're His people. We're His community. And His church will ongoingly be governed and built up by revelation. It's not that Jesus found the church supernaturally and then He just gives it over to us to do whatever we want until He returns. We don't build it how we want. We don't grow it however we see fit. So when you go to a conference that says church growth conference, probably problematic. As I said earlier, Jesus gives us the end desire for His church and He gives us us the means by which we reach that end. Which leads me to point number three. The nature of the Christian community is apostolic. Look at verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, these two verses are some of the most hotly debated verses in all of Scripture. Probably the two most hotly debated verses And many of you know, specifically if you come from a Roman Catholic background, that these verses are the foundation for the Roman Catholic papacy and the teaching about the papacy and papal authority. And while that discussion is not the interest of this sermon, I do think it would be very unwise to come to these verses and not deal with these texts in that regard. Because literally... The nature and the essence of the church is at stake in how we understand these two verses. Is Rome right? Are the Protestants right? Very important. We need to know this. We need to deal with this. And I know that very likely some of you are in this room. You can never read these verses again the same because you come from a Roman Catholic background. And that's been taught to you so often So before I move us ahead and argue for what I believe to be the Spirit-inspired meaning for these verses, I want to give you five reasons why the Roman Catholic view of the Petrine papacy is erroneous and unbiblical. Number one, nowhere in Matthew or anywhere else in Scripture do we see Peter being given any keys. And later, in 18... Jesus uses this same phrase about binding and loosing to talk about the discipline of the church. And he addresses the entire group of the disciples. We have no historic record of Peter getting to Rome and passing down through secession his authority to the bishops of Rome. We have no biblical or historical evidence for that idea. And we don't see any evidence of that until around the 3rd century. Number two, Peter's ministry goes goes largely unattested after Acts chapter 12. You, You see him, but the shift focuses from Peter to Paul in his missionary journeys. Luke highlights Paul, and this is because Peter primarily was to take the gospel to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles. But remember, the idea of the papacy rests on the fact that Peter goes to Rome and hands down his authority 
to the bishops through secession. But who does the Bible, the Bible highlight as the apostle that takes the gospel to Rome? Not Peter, Paul. Paul writes much more of the New Testament than Peter does. And I think when we look at the New Testament and the progression of the church, we, we could make the argument that Paul surpasses Peter in terms, of his, in terms of what he contributes to the New Testament and in terms of his significance. And it just seems really odd that if Peter was the first infallible pope of the church that the Holy Spirit would choose to work so pervasively through another man. Seems odd. Number three, in Acts 15, when Paul and Barnabas come to Jerusalem, remember they come to Jerusalem to discuss whether Gentiles who are believing in Christ should be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law. Right? They go to Jerusalem to settle this question. And it says Paul and Barnabas, they don't go to surrender their doctrine to Peter. They go to the apostles and the elders, as it says. And it says that they were welcomed by the whole church. It says that they had much debate. They hashed the question out in corporate manner. They dialogued, they discussed, they looked at at Scripture. They listened to Paul and Barnabas testify. And they came to to the conclusion that Gentile believers do not have to be circumcised. And yes, Peter stands and gives the verdict, but who else gives the verdict? James. So if, if Peter were the infallible Pope of the church, why wouldn't they just surrender the doctrine to Peter? Peter, just tell us the answer. They don't do that. They surrender it to the church. And they get the answer. Number four, in 1 Peter 5.1, listen to how Peter speaks about himself when writing to the overseers of the churches. I exhort the elders among you as the infallible Pope of the church. No. As a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is to come, that is to be revealed. Peter doesn't say that he's God's Pope of the church. He says, no, I'm a fellow elder. I'm exhorting you as one like you. And lastly, number five, I think this is most significant of all. In Galatians 2, Paul tells of a time that he stands up publicly before the Jews and the Gentiles and rebukes Peter to his face publicly. And he says that Peter puts the gospel at stake and lives in a way that is not in step with the truth of the gospel. So Paul evidently does not see some untouchable, untouchable status in Peter. He sees Peter as the same as he is. Equal status. He goes on to say, Peter and James and John and all these guys were seen as leaders, but he says, to me, what they were makes no difference. God shows no partiality. And he rebukes Peter to his face. Think about this. Years after Pentecost. This isn't a few days after Jesus was raised. This is years after Pentecost. Peter has a major lapse of judgment here. Doctrinally and morally. 
Paul says his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So if Peter is the the foundation of an infallible papacy, how could he have even been open to such error? And again, Paul seems to be the one who most accurately understands the gospel and its implications in the New Testament. And he corrects Peter. So I'm going to trust that you need no further evidence for that. But what then is the rock? What does Jesus mean by you are the rock on which I will build my church? Again, there's a lot of different views on that. Some believe that the rock is Jesus himself. So you could imagine Jesus saying, on this rock I will build my church. I don't think there's any warrant for that grammatically. Others believe that the confession is the rock. So in other words, this this truth about Jesus being Lord, about being the Son of God, that's the rock on which Christ will build my church. A lot of Protestants have held that view over the years. uh, But grammatically, again, I don't think that there's great warrant for that view. I think the most natural reading for this text is that the rock is referring to Peter. There is clearly a play on words here because rock in Greek is Petra, which sounds very similar to Peter. Petros in Greek. And both refer in some way to a rock. One is just feminine and one is masculine. And if we look at the words in Aramaic, they would have been the words Jesus would have been speaking in, the words would have been the same. Kepa, which is where we translate the word Cephas or Kephas. You see Peter's name called that other places in the New Testament. The same word would have been used. So grammatically it seems as if Jesus gives Simon, son of John, the name Peter. It sounds like the word for rock and says, on this rock I will build my church. Now, we just established that the Roman Catholic idea of a papacy is erroneous and unbiblical. So what is going on here? Don't think it's that controversial. Think it's very simple. Although Peter is not given infallible authority over the church, he is marked out as the leader of the early church. We see this. Peter rising up as the leader of the eleven in Acts chapter 1 and replacing Judas. We see him preaching first to the crowds in Acts 2 at Pentecost when 3,000 are saved and the church is birthed. We see people carrying the sick out to the streets so that it says that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them, that they would be healed. We see him raising the dead in Acts 9 and we see him taking the gospel to the first Gentiles in Acts 10. So Peter is significant. And he, along with the other apostles, is the leader, the historic leader of the foundation of the early church. D.A. Carson calls Peter the first among equals. And R.T. France, in commenting on this verse, says, in principle, all the apostles constituted the foundation with Jesus as the cornerstone. But as a matter of historical fact, it was on Peter's leadership that the earliest phase of the church's development would depend And that personal role, fulfilling his name Rock, is appropriately celebrated by Jesus' words here. So again, what are are we to make of all this? Is, Is Peter significant? Is he superior in some way? I think what is being said to us is that Jesus' church will be an apostolic church. It will not be governed by a pope. It will be governed by the writings of the apostles. Until Jesus 
returns. Does that mean that there will be apostles today? No. There are no apostles today. The Scriptures are very clear that the apostles laid the foundation. Ephesians 2.20, Paul says of the household of God that it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.12 that He, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation... But then he goes on to say, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. The apostles understood that they had been given a unique commission to preach Christ's word, to teach about Christ, and to write scripture, and to lay the foundation of the church. And once they all died and, and their words were handed down to us, now the church is governed and built up on this apostolic word. On this prophetic word. And it will be until Jesus returns. It's governed by apostolic witness. Not by our hearts. Not by what works. By apostolic witness. Jesus continues to build His church as pastors and teachers preach and teach the apostolic word, as the saints receive the apostolic word, and then go forth and minister the truth in love to one another, building up the body in love to present a mature church to Christ Jesus when He returns. The apostles laid the foundation of the church and the apostolic witness continues to govern the church today. So I just want to encourage you I know we didn't get to a lot of practical things. In City Group this week, we will get very practical and talk about how these things apply to our lives, how we should think about these things in the life of the local church. But he says in verse 18 that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As long as we are having fidelity to Christ, confessing Him truthfully, as long as we are letting the church be governed according to Scripture, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. No matter how much evil is out there, no matter how much apostasy we see, Jesus' people, His community will prevail. His kingdom will go forth. And by His mercy, He has brought us into His community and he has, a grace, he has graciously allowed us to be a part of His building project. And He has given us sufficient, a sufficient witness by which we must accomplish His work and the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to see it forth. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we know that You take Your church extremely seriously. You've died for her. You've shed your blood for her. You will return for a spotless bride. And so we pray that You would help us to develop real convictions regarding the nature and essence of the church and that we would serve You and serve Your people until You return. That You would be glorified and honored. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.